When we think about love, we typically think of what love feels like, don't we? We wonder, what does it feel like to love? When the Bible talks about love, when the Bible talks about agape love, the Bible's definition of love doesn't focus on what love feels like, but on what love looks like. I think there's a slide to that The biblical definition of love doesn't focus on what love feels like, but on what love looks like. And love looks like service. Biblical love looks like service. And so when we talk about how Jesus came to teach us and to show us to love our enemies and to love our neighbors and to love our brethren and to love our family... It's not just talking about changing how you feel about your neighbor, how you feel about your enemy. It's talking about how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your enemy, specifically how you serve your neighbor, how you serve your enemy. And so what we want to talk about this month is how Jesus is inviting us to follow him into a life of love, into a life of service. Jesus is inviting us to get our hands dirty with him. And this service will transform your life. Allowing Jesus to serve you and allowing Jesus to teach you to serve others will absolutely turn your life upside down. And that's what we've been focusing on these three months, before and after. This is who I am today, but who do I need to be tomorrow? And what changes do I need to put into my life right now so that I walk out of this building committed? Each day I'll do a golden deed by helping those who are in need. Committed to living our life differently because of Jesus tomorrow than we did yesterday. Let's talk about your spot at the table, okay? In Jesus' day, your spot at the table was incredibly important to people. It it told people how important you were by how important your spot at the table was. The closer you were to the seat of honor, the more important you were. And so people would kind of try to elbow their way and jockey into position so that they had the better seat at the table. I got to thinking about my life and how oftentimes that same mentality has played out in my life. When I was in middle school, it was kind of like that. The table you sat at was incredibly important. We had, and we even called it like the popular table and the not so popular, I don't know what we call the other table, but, but we, we knew that the table you sat at was incredibly important. And I don't know about you, but I never really had an, an important seat an important spot at the table. And and I did a lot of things in my life, and I look back now, and I think a lot of the things I did was so that I could get a better spot at the table. I I think about the fact that I was 6th, 7th grade, I got a paper route. And I worked incredibly hard on this paper route, miles a day, cold Kansas winters, riding around neighborhoods, passing out papers so that I could earn some money. And I took that money and I invested it in really important stuff with really important labels on it, right? I went, I remember I spent a hundred dollars on a start, Dallas Cowboys starter jacket. I don't know if you remember that, but like 20 years ago, that was the thing. And, and, and we, it was this pullover jacket. That's silly anyway, cause your hair got messed up. But you know, you pull over this jacket and man, I thought I got a hundred dollar jacket. It wasn't warmer than a twenty dollar jacket, but it had a little label on it that told people 
I deserve a better spot at the table. And then I saved up my money after that and I bought a pair of Oakley sunglasses. Seventh grade, spending $100 on a pair of sunglasses. That's crazy, isn't it? Why? Because I was really concerned about the UV rays? No. It's because I thought if I had a better pair of sunglasses and a better coat, and I dressed like my friends, then I would deserve a better spot at the table. I wasn't an athlete. Still not an athlete. I couldn't run or jump or hit or catch. But I tried to pretend I could. Why? So I could get a better spot at the table. So I could sit at the cool table. You know, and and maybe as adults, we don't have those kinds of visual examples. Maybe we're not jockeying for a seat at a specific literal table. But so much of what we do in life is because we're trying to jockey for position. We're trying to get a better spot at the table. If we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes the clothes we buy and the cars we buy and the houses we buy and the jewelry we buy and the way we spend our money is really not about the product. It's really about having a better spot at the table. Saying, I deserve a spot at the important table. In the pecking order, I'm at the top. On the totem pole, I deserve a spot at the top. Are we really all that much different than the people of Jesus' day? And how, if we learn to follow Jesus' instruction and Jesus' life and Jesus' example, would it turn this completely upside down? And church, listen, I'm not judging the car you drive or the house you own or the clothes you wear, but I do believe Jesus is calling you to judge those things. Jesus is calling you to examine those things. Jesus is calling you to examine your love because your love isn't just about how you feel in your heart towards somebody, but what you do. Because it's easy, isn't it, to deceive ourselves into thinking, I love them, I love everybody, I just love everybody, I'm just the most loving person you ever met, I love everybody, I don't hate anybody, I don't despise anybody. But the biblical definition of love doesn't focus on what love feels like, but on what love looks like. And it looks like service. So let's think about this story in Luke chapter 14. And we find Jesus at a dinner party, okay? Jesus is at a dinner party, a party full of Pharisees, okay? So sometimes we say, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. and That's true. And Jesus also ate with some Pharisees. And these particular Pharisees invited Jesus to the party specifically so that they could watch him and hopefully trap him. And Jesus knew that, didn't he? And and, and just imagine what this party looks like. You've got this long table and you've got people probably reclining at the table, not sitting in chairs like we do, but but jockeying for a good seat at the table, right? And Jesus is watching this and they probably think that they're being subtle, right? Like we always do. And we, oh, oh, no, 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 after you, after you. And we're really just trying to edge our way in. You know, and, and so maybe they think they're being subtle, but Jesus is watching it, saying, thinking, look like a bunch of clowns trying to get the best seat in the house. And all the while, while they're sitting at this dinner, they're cutting their eyes over to Jesus. Maybe they're pretending to have a conversation. But they're really watching Jesus. And they're thinking, what's he going to do? Why? Because there's a guy there, and it's the Sabbath, and they're wondering how Jesus is going to act and if Jesus is going to heal him. It says, verse 1, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. He had this this infl- this uh, this ailment. His body was swollen. 
fluid was built up, painful. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, see, they thought they were going to trap him, but he ended up trapping them, didn't he? He turned the tables on them. They, they, it would have been great if they, if he just would have healed the guy and then they would have said, boom, see, he's healing on the Sabbath. You see, he's breaking the rules. There's that Jesus breaking the rules again. But instead, he puts the ball in their court. And he says, okay, here's a man. He's suffering. He's hurting. Probably has been for quite a while. You decide. Do I heal him on the Sabbath or not? They, they can't very likely say, no, no, don't heal him, because then they seem like heartless people, right? And they can't say heal him because then they're advocating to break the rules, and that was the whole purpose of the setup in the first place. But it's kind of interesting that this man with dropsy is there at all, isn't it? doesn't seem like they're too concerned about him. In fact, he's really more bait than he is anything else. You know, that got me thinking, especially as I, we read through this story. Are the people in our life people to us? When, when you go to a restaurant and there's a waiter or a waitress that comes to your table, is she or he a person to you? Or are they just the object that brings you your food? Do they exist for you or are you there for them? Are they there to wait on you or are you looking for opportunities to serve them? This man with dropsy, they didn't care about him. They didn't care about his ailment. They didn't care about his suffering. They didn't care how he felt. To them, he was just bait. He was a worm on a hook. And they remained silent. Verse 4. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And then Jesus says, verse 5. Which of you, having a son or even an ox, if your son or your ox... It falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Why? Why would you do that? If your son fell into a well, you don't say, sorry son, it's the Sabbath, I'll get to you tomorrow, right? You don't do that. You get a rope, you call your friends, you get him out. And even if your ox falls down and say, well, oh well, you know, maybe he'll be there tomorrow, but you don't do that, you pull him out. Why? Because you care. Because your ox is valuable to you. Because your son is valuable to you. What's the implication? That that man wasn't. Are people valuable to you? And they couldn't reply to these things. Jesus says, they bring, this guy's there with dropsy. He says, should I heal him or no? Dead silent. And then he heals him, sends him away. And then he says, listen, hey. You bunch of hypocrites. If your son or your ox fell into a well, you'd go to work on the Sabbath, wouldn't you? Your people, your animals are more important to you than your rules. Why wasn't this man more important to you than your rules? And they're dead silent. Jesus is not the kind of guy that they wanted to have at their party, right? They're thinking, man, who invited this guy, right? This is awkward, right? Awkward. And he just keeps on. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, and he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and you'll, you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. I mean, that's what I experienced in middle school, and if I'm honest, that's what I experienced as an adult. 
That so often you fight and you fight and you fight and you fight and you fight to have the best spot. And then at the end of the day, somebody says, actually, could somebody else sit there? And you got to take the walk of shame down to the end of the table, right? I mean, isn't that the way that it works? We fight and we fight and we fight and we fight to have a great spot at the table. And then what? Somebody always comes and takes our spot. It's in vain, isn't it? What are we fighting for? You have the best labels and the best sunglasses and the best coats and the best cars and the best houses and the best vacations and the best this and the best that. For what? For what? So that for for a minute somebody thinks that you're great and awesome and successful and smart and rich. And then what? Then somebody's richer and smarter and more successful than you. What are you fighting for? He says, verse 10, but you... When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. I think that's more than just metaphor here. When you're invited somewhere, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember that, because that's what everything we're going to talk about this morning is all about. When you're fighting for your spot, when you're fighting for a better spot, when you're jockeying for position, when you're trying to be at the top of the pecking order, you will be humbled. But when you humble yourself, because of Jesus, and for Jesus, and in the steps of Jesus, you will be exalted. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the one to come. Jesus is telling those who would follow him, take the lowest spot. I mean, that's powerful, isn't it? Take the lowest spot. Stop it with the rat race. Stop it. Stop jockeying for position. Stop trying to impress people with how smart you are or how successful you are or how this or how that. Stop and take the lowest position. I mean, it's it's a lot to think about, isn't it? What does that commandment look like in our culture? What would it look like to be the kind of people who said, I don't care about having the best spot at the dinner table. I'll take, not the one right below that, or one right below that, but I'll take the lowest spot. I don't care what people think when they see me sitting at the lowest spot. I don't care that people walk in and they say, well, what did he do? What did Wes do? He's sitting way at the end of the, he's sitting at the kids' table. What did he do? He must have, he must have done something bad. He gets sitting way down to the bottom of the table. I don't care. That's the spot I'm going to take. This is what Jesus is calling His people to do. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is calling His people to live out in the first century and in the 21st century. Let's keep reading. He also said to the man who had invited him, (laughs) he's getting on to the guest, that he turns to the the ruler of the synagogue, right? This is an important man in 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 the town. And now he turns to that guy and he says, okay, I got a few words for you too. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends. Or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. He's really getting to the heart of the matter, isn't he? 
It's really easy to practice hospitality and, and practice hospitality in such a way that it's comfortable and that it ends up benefiting us, right? We feel better about ourselves. We get to hang out with our friends. Our friends will invite us to their house. And I mean, and we get to tell ourselves we're being hospitable, right? I have my friends and my neighbors over to eat and I'm being hospitable. And Jesus says, wait a second. The one who's really benefiting from your hospitality is you. You're not serving them. You're asking them to serve you. You're serving yourself. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Does this have immediate connection to what we read at the beginning of the dinner feast? There was a man with dropsy there who they were treating like a worm on a hook. And he says to this man who invited these guests, that man that just left, he should have been your guest of honor. He should have been your guest of honor, but you didn't value him. You didn't care about him. He was here so that he could trap me. All the while, you've given the best seats to your friends and your buddies who will in return repay you. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's an interesting word, isn't it? The resurrection of the just. Some translations may say righteous. In God's mind, who are just people? People who are concerned about justice, right? Justice. People who are concerned about righteousness. What is right? What is good? What is just? And Jesus says, here's what justice looks like. You who have, take care of the people who have not. Right? And as we look through the Bible, if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm afraid all too often I'm not honest with myself, because I want to convince myself that, that it's all about what's in my heart. Right? Just what's in my heart. I've got a good heart, God. Don't you know I've got a good heart? I love people. But God says, no, listen. Justice, righteousness, Mercy, love, is not just about how you feel or what you think. It's about what you do. And it's about you who have taking care of those who have not. What did James say? James says, this is what pure and undefiled religion looks like. It looks like visiting the widows and the orphans in their affliction and keeping yourself unstained from the world. It's not just about what you believe. Because James says, listen, I know you say you have faith. Show me. Show me. You say you have faith. Let me see it. Because faith without works is what, church? Dead. It's like, it's like a body without a spirit. It's dead. Faith that doesn't do. Love that doesn't serve is not love. Faith that doesn't work is not faith. Church, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to be people of righteousness and justice who do for those who can't do for themselves. Who The people that have taking care of the people who have not. In fact, one commentary on Proverbs says this, the righteous, the righteous, those who care about justice and righteousness are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of their community. And the wicked, by contrast, because that's what Proverbs does, 
the wicked are willing to disadvantage their community for the advantage of themselves. Church, this isn't about politics. This is about Christianity. Right? This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to real, radical service to other people. Practice hospitality, but don't just practice hospitality in a way that benefits you, where you're really just serving yourself, making yourself feel good, so that it's all about reciprocity. I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. Serve the people that can't serve you. Give to those who can't give back to you, because then you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. And of course, when Jesus says this, again, everybody's silent, right? Awkward, as my youngest son says, awkward. I mean, I mean, really? I mean, here we invited this Jesus guy, we thought we were going to trap him, but the whole time he's been scolding us for everything we've done. Now those of us that think that Jesus never rebuked, never judged, haven't been reading the Gospels. Because Jesus told people, what you're doing is wrong and it needs to change. And if I'm honest with myself, it hits me square between the eyes. Wes, what you're doing is wrong and it needs to change. And so he says, you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the just. And I could just picture, it doesn't say he raises his glass, but I just picture he raises his glass. Verse 15, one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What's the implication there? That's me, right? Uh, Yes, resurrection. Resurrection of the just. Yes, absolutely, Jesus. That's all of us. We are the just. We are the righteous. And blessed be us because we're going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. This is Jesus' ministry, isn't it? This is Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was going to those who had been invited and said, Hey, you know how we've been talking about the kingdom of God? How heaven's kingdom was coming? You you know how the Messiah was supposed to come? He's here. The banquet's ready. Come, come, come. And everybody made excuses. I can't. I can't. This is too important to me. That's too important to me. I can't give this up. Are you kidding me? How can I give this up right now? This isn't good timing for me. The first said to him, I bought a field. I need to go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yokes of yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in, and again he says, the poor and crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Who's he talking about? The people at the table he was sitting around. They had, they had plenty. And they leveraged what they had for themselves. They disadvantaged their community to their own advantage. They were not willing to disadvantage themselves. They were not willing to serve. They were not willing to love. Therefore, they were not righteous. They were not just. 
And in the resurrection, Jesus says, you will have missed the boat. Why? Because you got the best seat. That's what your concern was about. Your concern was about having the best seat. Rather than saying, here, you take my seat. Rather than getting up from the table and wrapping a towel around yourself and washing people's feet, your concern was that someone else wash yours. And the entire gospel account of Luke, this is the kind of thing that Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, you need to become nothing. You cannot gain your life unless you lose it. And it's not just about what's in our heart and what's in our mind. And we say, yeah, but didn't Jesus come just so that we think different and believe different and feel different? Absolutely. What Jesus taught is going to change the way we think. But if it doesn't change the way we live, if it doesn't change the way we love, if it doesn't change the way we serve, then we really haven't gotten it yet. All Jesus is asking, I think, right now, for us to do is take a step in that direction. How about this? How about we do, this week especially, next week, month after, we'll we'll talk about that later, but this week, commit yourself to doing the most for the one who can do the least for you. Do the most for the one who can do the least for you. Because after all, isn't that the gospel? When Jesus asks you to love your enemies and serve them, when Jesus asks you to do for the one who cannot do for you, to give to the one who can't give back to you. He isn't asking you to do anything he didn't do for you. You were the one who could do nothing for God. As far as your relationship to God was concerned, you were dead, Paul says. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. But he, Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, made you alive. He brought you from death to life. And he said, now that you've been raised up with Christ, go out and do that kind of thing for other people. Live out the gospel in your life. Do for the one who can do the least for you, do the most for them. What if you treated people that way this week? What if you went out to lunch this afternoon or maybe your life group is meeting and maybe you'll go to supper somewhere or maybe, I don't know, but next time you're at a restaurant, and your waiter or waitress comes by, understand that you're there for them. They're not there for you. Do for them in a way that they can't repay you. This is the kind of exercise Jesus asks us to undergo as we follow Him. To have a party. To have a feast. To have a banquet and not invite our friends or our rich neighbors. Not to invite the people that we like or that can do things for us, but to invite the people that nobody else is doing anything for to do the most for the one who can do the least for us. Is this radical? Absolutely. It will change our world if we live out the gospel. Imagine that, church. Imagine if all 1,000 of us went out into our community this week and next week and the week after, and we really live this out. We really live this out, and we stop saying, I want a better spot at the table. We stop saying, I want people to think that I'm smart and successful. We stop saying, I want to be like everybody else. And we start taking the lowest seat. And we start inviting to the table the lame and the blind and the poor and the crippled. The people that can't do anything for us. And we do the most 
for those that can do the least for us. I'll tell you, it would change this community, wouldn't it? It would change the world if we truly believed and understood that the gospel isn't just here to change our mind and our heart, but it's here to change our hands. Let's get our hands dirty with Jesus because He got His hands bloody for us. He gave everything for us. And now we go out and we live out that same kind of love, that same kind of service, that same kind of sacrifice for the people we come into contact with. Maybe there's somebody here that hasn't begun that journey with Jesus. Isn't that what this is all about? Is that you have nothing to offer God. You're, you have nothing that you can work. If you just work hard enough and do enough that maybe God will be pleased with you. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works that Jesus came and gave everything for you so that you might receive that life, that forgiveness as a gift through faith by putting Jesus on in baptism. And if you haven't done that, what are you waiting for? And then be raised up and join us as we struggle and we haven't got it figured out yet and we're still trying to live out these principles. Will we do the most for the people who can do the least for us? Why don't you join us in that? If we can help you in that, we want to, we want to help you. We want you to help us. The elders are going to pray with you in the, in the prayer room in the back after services if you need it, or you can come forward. We want to be with you. We want to help you. We want to pray with you. We're in this together as we go forward doing the most for those who can do the least for us. Let's stand together and sing.